Turn to the book of Romans, please. It's exciting when we have babies born into the church. It's good. It's good. Romans chapter 12, we have been, we're going to finish the chapter today. We're talking about everyday Christianity. We touched on it last week through the first few verses. Uh, We want to continue that today. We're going to begin as we look, if you look at chapter 12, we're going to begin in verse 13. It says, contribute to the needs of the saints, seek to show hospitality, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will reap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We start out and we understand something from verse 13. He says immediately, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. What does everyday Christianity reflect? What does it do? How do we live this life of Jesus Christ in that is in us? What do we do to live it out of us to let our light shine in the world? Well, first thing is this, the everyday Christian blesses others. The everyday Christian blesses others. When there is a need, they give to be able to help to meet the needs. Notice what it says, contribute to the needs of the saints. Now, what we're understanding in this passage, possibly Paul is talking about the saints that are in Jerusalem. But understand, we need to know this and understand it, is that the time of his writing, there is persecution going on. And some of these Christians have been driven away from their homes. They don't have anything left. And so what he's saying is, look, there are going to be times when people are going to be destitute. Come to their aid, especially brothers and sisters in the Lord. Give unto them. And also, there were men who gave up very, very good professions back in Jerusalem that were ministering to the saints in word and by prayer. And they were contributing from all these places that Paul had gone. They were taking up offerings and sending them back to Jerusalem so these men would have a way to provide for their families because they gave up many, many things in following the Lord. So what we're to do in the same way, when you contribute to the needs here of the saints at the church, we set aside money to where we can give to those who have needs. Unfortunately, within Christianity, we realize that only about two point, uh, Christians only give about 2.5% of their income. A long time ago, we had this little thing that 
went around uh, Christianity little bumper stickers back when they used to do bumper stickers. And it says, honk if you love Jesus. Do y'all remember that? Honk if you love Jesus. Well, someone came out and said something totally different. They put tithe, anybody can honk. There's a bumper sticker that they went out. Tithing or giving basically says, this is something I do in obedience to the Lord because he told me to give. Now, understand, I'm not going to sit here and tell you, you must give 10% of all your income right now this. But what we have to understand is that Christians are really lackadaisical in their giving to their local churches. If we wanted to do something within the local church, understand, folks, we could probably do anything we wanted to as far as blessing other people. If people would just give something. But Christians are only giving 2.5% of their income. Did you know during the Great Depression, Christians were giving 3.3%? Even during the Great Depression. Only 3 to 5% of Americans uh, who give to their local church do through tithing. Only 17%. Only 17% of Americans state that they regularly tithe. Tithe basically meaning giving 10%. For families making 75000 and above, 1% of them, 1% gave at least a 10%. Now think about this. Three out of four people who don't go to church make contributions to nonprofit organizations. That's telling you something that maybe perhaps the lost world is better at giving than the Christians are. The average giving by adults who attend a U.S. Protestant church is about $17 a week. 37% of regular church goers and evangelicals don't give any money to their church. 17% of American families have reduced the amount that they give to their local church. And 7% of churchgoers have dropped regular giving by 20% or more. Folks, it's not trying to make you guilty at all, but get you to be obedient in the fact that if we can contribute to the needs of the saints, whenever you have problems, whenever you f fall on financial hardships, the church is here to be able to help you. That's why we take up the low offering. You saw the men, we take up the offering. We set aside some funds to be able to do that kind of thing if you're truly in need. But you have to contribute for us to be able to do that. And so everyday Christianity basically says, I will contribute to the needs of the saints. Second thing is, they open their homes to others. It's showing hospitality, the end of verse 13. It literally means, the word means pursuing the love of strangers. Pursuing the love of strangers. Now, the, the care of strangers in the Old Testament was absolutely necessary, and it was thought of one of the highest virtues that you could have. Why? Because when the Hebrew people went away from Egypt... They were sojourners. They were strangers in the land. There were some folks that took them in and treated them as if they were their, their family. And so this was really a big emphasis. In fact, Hebrews chapter 13 verse 2 says this, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. 
Do you know why we don't do that? You ready for this? I mean, why we should? It says, because some have entertained angels unaware. Here's one of the reasons that we show hospitality and open up our homes because we may be entertaining an angel. I keep telling Brenda that she is entertaining an angel each and every day that I am in her home. And all she tells me is, says, yes, you're an angel. You're always up in the air harping about something. So, but understand that hospitality is a sign of a Christian. We should be welcoming each other in our homes and also strangers at time if we need to be. So listen to Luke chapter 14, verse 12. He said, Jesus said also to the man who invited him, he'd gone to a dinner, he, uh, a scribe had come to him, basically a Pharisee, and they invited him to dinner. And it's, he looked at that man and he said this, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest also they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now think about that. He is saying this. Don't just invite your friends. Invite other folks to be a part of your home. To come and show show hospitality to them. Some of you may have neighbors that you've not really known very well. What's a better way to get to know them? Invite them to come over and to share dinner with you. Or Hey, why not take something to them and give something to them so that they can know that you are thinking about them, you are praying for them. It's basically saying, I want to take this Christianity of mine and I want to shine it to someone else. It's a great way for you to be able to show hospitality to your neighbors. What would, if I want y'all to think about this. Think about this. What if we, at our church, around Thanksgiving time or before Thanksgiving time, opened up our church parking lot and we put on a feast for those who couldn't afford Thanksgiving? What if we could do something like that? Invite people to come, those who are poor, those who are lame, those who are blind, just as it says, whatever that, that normally they couldn't do it, why not? Why don't we just open the door, show hospitality? I think that's something we ought to pray about and to think about so that we can share the bounty of God, what God has given to us, that we can share it with them. Third John, verse 3 through 8 says this, for I Rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles, 
Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. In other words, John had sent some guys to check on the church that he was writing to. They were received very well. John gets that word back and says, guys, y'all have done a wonderful job receiving these people that you didn't even know. And you entered into the support people who are fellow workers for the truth. So everyday Christianity means I am going to not only give, but I'm going to be hospitable. Let's look at another thing everyday Christians do. Everyday Christians bless those who are hostile towards them. Look at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. This is one of the hardest things you can do. That when someone is giving you a bad time, someone is persecuting for you for what you believe or just for who you are. You're to pray, I'm to pray, that the Lord would bless them. Now I want you to understand something. The Apostle Paul is basically just reflecting everything that was stated by our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, known as what? The Sermon on the Mount. Notice what Jesus says. You have heard it said, you shall love, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies And pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. In Luke chapter 6, he says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Now, Jesus was the greatest example of this kind of attitude. He is not going to give commands that he himself is not willing to keep. So from the cross, you remember, he says what? After they've tortured him and they've put nails through his hands and through his feet, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Peter tells us, for this, to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judge, judges justly. In other words, he blessed, he did not curse. We are to do the same. And what that means is those who persecute us, those who are our enemies, folks, we have to forgive them. That's how we can bless them. That word bless is a word called eulogio. It's where we get our word eulogy. You've stood at a funeral And you hear people then giving eulogies. This word carries with it the connotation to pray for the good. 
One of the toughest things I know that you can do is to pray for somebody who is your enemy. Even though you don't consider them an enemy, they consider you one. The Bible says, pray for them. So everyday Christians pray for those who persecute them. Next is the everyday Christian enters into the life of other believers. That's why we're gathered together here at a church, folks. We gather and become members of a church so that we can enter into life together and do life together. Notice what he says, verse 12. I mean, verse 15, it says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. In other words, when something happens in the body, when someone has good things going on in the body and they tell you about it, we're to rejoice with them. We're not to be envious of them. We're not to ask God and say, why do they get the blessings and I don't get the blessings? We're to rejoice. We're to be happy for when they prosper. But also, we are to weep when they weep. Now, this is the act of compassion which we are all to do. It reflects the nature of God as the Lamentations tells, whose compassions never fail. You see, this is what Nehemiah says about God. He says, you're a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love or compassion. He does not forsake them. Colossians tells us this in chapter 3, but put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So what is one of the attributes of the Christian? It's to be compassionate. Weep with those who weep. Folks, I don't know if you know this or not, but I do a whole lot of funerals. I get called by Pace Stancil. I get called by different places when people don't have a pastor to go and to do funerals. It's there at funerals that you begin to see this in action, especially when it's a believer, when people file by. I don't know, you know, it's one of the traditions, I guess, and I don't know what it, where it came from, but when the casket is there, I, I, after the funeral message, I come and I stand by the head of the casket and people get to walk by and, you know, and, and, and go that way. It's really kind of a, an interesting scenario because you get to see the different emotions of people as they come by, the different things that they do to pay tribute to those who, who have passed. I, I did one just recently where a little girl comes running down. I mean, she's moving down the aisle during the pass by before everybody gets there. And she's got one of those plastic guitars in her hand. Y'all, it's a little plastic guitar. I guess she got it at Bucky's or someplace. I don't know. And she puts it on grandfather's chest and winds it up. And it starts playing uh, Johnny Cash, I Walk the Line. Loudly. And she pats grandpa. She said his favorite song. And we pass by with I Walk the Line. That's a lot better than the one we did about, about three months ago 
when the mom comes up to me and she says, my son had a favorite song. Can I play it at the pass by, please? I said, is, is it appropriate? Oh, yes, it's appropriate. So I come down, I stand at the head, and all of a sudden, here comes the music. Are you ready for some football? And we, can't, we pass by to Hank Williams, you know, junior singing, are you ready for some football? You know, and there was wailing of gnashing of teeth when these folks came by, you know, because they were weeping, and yet they knew that this is what he loved. They entered into that. The great thing that you see is when you're down there at the funeral is when people come by and they're believers and they come by and they, they pat and they talk and they weep and they grab one another and they, they're on one another's shoulders and they're, they're crying and they're saying, we will see them again. That's what he's saying. Weep with those who weep. I'm going to write a book one of these days on funeral follies. I, I, I know I am because I've got so many different stories of that. But it's good to see that people will actually weep with those who weep. Now, the everyday Christian also shares the love. <laughs> they share the love. Listen to verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own Sight. This speaks something else besides unity, folks. It's not talking about unity. Because it's really saying, real quickly, he said, don't set your mind on high things. Associate with those that are lowly. Now, that seems to contradict what Paul says, set your minds on things above, but it really doesn't. He's not speaking about spiritual things. He's speaking about earthly high things ambitions that I've got to be in a position that's going to satisfy my flesh. Don't be driven by status is what he's trying to tell us. Don't separate yourselves from others because of your high positions. Don't be like the scribes. Mark 12, it says, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the feast who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive greater condemnation. In other words, don't. Don't be like that. Associate with the common. Associate with the lowly associate with everyone, in other words, and use that as a witness for Christ. Next, the everyday Christian doesn't walk around in conceit. They basically are walking in humility. There is not any air of intellectual superiority. And yet, in this time, when Paul's writing this, there's something that's starting to manifest itself. There's something that's coming up and starting to say, we know how to get saved and we do it through our mind. It was called Gnosticism. In fact, John the Apostle, the first epistle there, First John, really is a response to this heresy called Gnosticism. You see, Gnostics believed in acquiring a special mystical knowledge as the means of salvation. 
And according to their beliefs, there's a great God that is good, that is perfect, but impersonable, unknowable. And the creator of the universe was actually a lesser deity, a cheap knockoff, in other words, of who the true God was. And so instead of having this utopian world, we have a world inflicted with pain and misery and intellectual and spiritual blindness. All matter is corrupt and evil. Only the spiritual is good and true. Therefore, we can be saved from this world by acquiring more knowledge. By acquiring more knowledge and understanding uh, of the things of the world, and therefore we will then attain the good. In other words, he's saying here in verse six, uh, in, in verse uh, sixteen, he's saying, "Never be wise in your own sight." Gnosticism was totally opposite. They wanted to be wise because they believed that was salvation. The wiser you were the more that you could have salvation. Christ and the message of salvation by Christ alone is totally, absolutely opposite. Isaiah 5, verse 21 says, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Proverbs 3, 7 says, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. So we are never to be wise in our own sight. You may obtain wisdom, absolutely. Go after wisdom. Proverbs is a whole book that says go after wisdom. But don't use that wisdom to put people down and you elevate you up as if you have reached elitism. That's what he's saying. This is what we need to understand. Don't walk in conceit. If God grants you wisdom, walk in humility to those of us who may not have it. Next is this, the everyday Christian does not live for vengeance. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Never pay it back. Some people live by the cry in the Old Testament, an eye for an eye a tooth for a tooth. But folks, that concerns civil justice. Now we're going to learn in Romans 13 about the purpose of the sword and how God uses human agency to bring about justice. But what Paul is saying is don't seek personal revenge. Instead, do what is right respect what is going on, be peaceful, because revenge is the opposite of peace. Do you realize how much we live in a culture of vengeance? Do y'all realize this? It's so pervasive within our culture that sometimes we don't even recognize it. We are seeking vengeance. And can I give you an example It's all in our movies, the things that we watch, the things that we hear. Some of my favorites that I watch, The the, the Count of Monte Cristo. Have have y'all seen that? Y'all seen The Count of Monte Cristo? Have y'all never seen The Count? 
where have y'all been? Okay, the Count of Monte Cristo, where he gets locked up, you know, and then he, he in, has injustice done to him, and he gets out, and his whole life is a, a, a life lived so that he can pay back and get revenge on the guy who put him in prison. You've seen, you know, Zorro? You remember that? It's, it's a story of, basically, of, of revenge. Gladiator? Y'all have seen Gladiator? What is that? It's a, you've seen Gladiator? Yeah, okay. So, it's a story of what? It's a story of revenge. The new one that just came out, Terminal List. You remember the old movies, Death Wish, 1 through 27, or whatever it was, Rambo, 1 through 9. Uh, they're all about this. Or one of my favorites, The Princess Bride. The whole theme is, my name is Enigma Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Y'all remember that one? Vengeance is what it is. Now, understand that vengeance is fueled by self-gratification. It is fueled by self-gratification. And we're told not to do that in Romans. We'll get to that in chapter 14 about satisfying the flesh. You see, you want satisfaction of seeing someone who hurt you to be punished. And here is the danger because seeking vengeance... By seeking vengeance, you put yourself in the place of God. You say, I will be God in this situation, and I will enact vengeance on my enemies. Notice if you drop down to verse 19, it says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay says the Lord. Now, whose job is it to repay? Is it yours? Is it mine? No, it's God's. And so when we want vengeance, dear folks, we are trying to usurp that authority that God alone has. Now, understand this. It's very, very subtle. Study the ways of vengeance. Think about this. I'll just give you one or two. They're real subtle. My boss... My boss was very mean to me, and I don't like him. So therefore, I'm not going to put in a good day's work for him. Subtle vengeance. Or, my wife was a little bit snarky with me this morning. I'm just not going to talk to her the rest of the day. Vengeance. It's subtle. Be very careful when we're talking about these kind of things. Christians live, do not live for vengeance. Understand this. Now, I want you to think about the little statement that it says over in verse 20. He goes on and says, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. That comes out of 2 Samuel Paul is quoting and uses the Old Testament consistently throughout the book of Romans. It comes from 2 Samuel when a servant of Elijah was taken to a place of Samaria and shown the Lord opened up his eyes and he says, shall we call the wrath of God down upon them? And Elijah says, no, 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 feed them. Give them something to drink. 
And it says those armies that had gathered went away when they saw that kind of kindness. They went away. Because God had said, it is mine to repay. But here's the thing that we all want you to look at. There's a word there, there there's a phrase there that says, so by doing you will re- heap burning coals on his head. In other words, if you're going to bless those who curse you, you're going to pray for those who persecute you, you're going to do good to those who are doing evil to you, burning coals are going to come upon their head. Now, I don't know about you, but how many of you have had burning coals on your head? I'm pretty sure it's pretty painful. I mean, they're hot. That's severe pain. But there are different interpretations of this little phrase that I I think that you should know. Here's one of them that God, if you do what God says to do, that you're not going to take vengeance upon your enemies or those who do you evil, that God's going to bring a greater consequence to them than you can. Whatever you think that needs to be done, God's going to do a better job. The second interpretation is this. Well, you will cause him shame, and they'll just be shameful for what they did. And then by you showing kindness, which is a different interpretation, is this. They cannot bear it. They will give in to it, and they will respond, and they will repent. However, Paul, again, is referencing something from the Old Testament. I want you to listen to these these words. Psalm 140, verse 10. It says, Let burning coals fall upon them. Let them be cast into fire, into miry pits, no more to rise. In that context, they're talking about judgment. They're talking about judgment when they're using things like this. Proverbs 5, uh, 25, 21 and 22 says, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink, for you will heap burning coals on his head. Now listen to what it says here, and I'll talk about this in a minute. And the Lord will reward you. Psalm eleven six says, let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be their portion of their cup. David wrote this when he was being pursued by the armies of Saul. And he gets deliverance from them. And he says this about his enemies. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind. And then in Psalm 18, in 12 through 14, he says, out of the brightness before him... Hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice. Hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. So when we use, see this kind of Old Testament scripture being used in the New Testament, Paul basically is speaking of judgment in the same Old Testament figurative language that they used. And in doing this, he's telling us to bless them, to pray for them, I believe, because God's judgment is about to fall on them. They need a blessing, they need our prayers. Because it says, leave the vengeance to 
God in these. We are to do that which is honorable. We are to try to live peacefully with all men. But when they persecute us and they are, become our enemies, we're giving them bread. We're giving them drink. We're blessing them when we're praying for them. And part of that prayer should be, oh, Lord, oh, Lord, your vengeance that is going to fall on this person at some point in time. Don't make it so severe. Don't make it so hard. Enough to open their eyes, oh Lord. Let them see they're wrong. You see, because that's going to happen because there are consequences to sin. We are to do that which brings a peaceful resolution if possible. We become peacemakers. And remember what Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God. But here's the truth I want you to think of, just real quickly. If you're going back to Proverbs 25, 21, and then we have it here. Here it says, you will reap burning, uh, they will heap burning coals on the head. Listen to what it says. If your enemy's hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head. And the Lord will reward you. Oftentimes we concentrate on those who are going to be paid back by God, letting the vengeance. But what God says is this, you endure it. You do exactly what he says to do, to live peaceably, at, if at all possible with men, to bless, to pray for. God's going to reward you because you're the one that's hurt. You're the one that's experiencing the pain. You're the one that's been rejected you're the one that is, your enemy is coming against you. God is going to reward you. He is going to be on your side as you do what he tells you to do. Now, if you're going to step in his place and have vengeance, folks, that's anger. That's a fruit of the flesh. He does not reward fruits of the flesh. But to walk in the spirit and to do exactly what he's saying to do here, to bless our enemies, you will be paid back. You will. So look for your rewards. You see, God's going to restore. God is going to heal. God's going to relieve your pain in due time. Think about this. What a great God. We endure this, and yet he continues to reward us. It's not in vain, people. It is not in vain. So as we're looking through these things, please, folks, read over it again and again. Marks of true Christianity. Love that is genuine. Hating what is evil. Holding fast to what is good. Loving one another. Outdoing one another in honor. Just go through it. Read it. It tells you this is the fruits of the Christian life. And as you do, when you get down to that last verse, do not be overcome by evil. Don't let it overwhelm you. Don't let those waves come over you to the point to where you said, enough is enough, I'm not going to do this anymore. Understand, God is going to reward you. And in that way, you can do exactly what those last five words say, but overcome evil with good. God is for you. He's not against you. He will reward you, even though it feels like it. 
at different times when evil comes on us, understand God is for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you give us such wise words, words we can live by, words that should reflect our lives each and every day. Help us to be these everyday Christians that you tell us about in this word. Help us to love. Help us to hate that which is evil. Help us to do honorably. Help us to live peaceful lives. Help us to bless. Help us to forgive. Help us to pray. And Lord, as we go through the trials and the temptations, knowing that you're working everything together for our good, let us always reflect on your goodness and let us always be mindful of how you reward us and how you love us and how you're for us. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.